This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. Before we begin, I want to issue a warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence, murder, and paranormal activity that some listeners may find disturbing. We also will be discussing mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, and suicide. We want to remind our listeners to prioritize their mental health and to take a break if needed. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Furthermore, we will be discussing real-life events that may be triggering for some listeners. We understand that this can be a sensitive and difficult topic to discuss. We have done our best to approach it with sensitivity and respect for those involved. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Death and despair linger in the shadows of even the most glamorous destinations, waiting to reveal their gruesome truths. But what if the place you called home was the epicenter of these horrors? The Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles has long been known as a place of dark secrets, unsolved mysteries, and tragic endings. For nearly a century, its walls have seen it all, from suicides to murders to some of the most bizarre and inexplicable events in modern history. But what if we could try to unlock the secrets of this hotel? What if we could unravel the mysteries that have haunted this place for decades? What if, in doing so, we could confront our deepest fears and understand the unknown forces that lurk in the shadows? As we step into the world of the Cecil Hotel, we can almost feel the weight of the building's haunted history bearing down upon us. The air is thick with the lingering memories of the countless tragedies that have taken place within these walls. We can't help but wonder what secrets are still hidden, waiting to be discovered. What horrors have taken place in the very rooms that we stand in? Who were the souls who met their untimely ends here? What drives people to the brink of despair and desperation that they choose to end their lives or the lives of others within their very walls? The Cecil Hotel is not just a building, but a portal into a world of darkness and chaos. It is a place where evil seems to thrive, and where the forces of the supernatural are never far away. As we delve deeper into the history of the hotel, we begin to understand that there is something inexplicable about the energy that surrounds this place. It's as if the hotel has a life of its own, a malevolent, almost sentient force that feeds on the misery of those who dare to cross its threshold. But why does the Cecil Hotel hold such an eerie fascination for so many people? Is it the stories of the infamous serial killer Richard Ramirez, who stayed here during his killing spree in the 1980s? Or is it the mysterious disappearance of Eliza Lamb, a Canadian student who checked into the hotel in 2013 and was later found dead in a water tank on the roof? Perhaps it's the countless other tales of violence and tragedy that have taken place within these walls, each one more disturbing and unexplained than the last. As we embark on this journey into the heart of darkness, we must be prepared to confront the most primal fears that lurk within us. 
we must be willing to peel back the layers of history and examine the most gruesome and disturbing details of the hotel's past. Only then can we hope to gain a greater understanding of the forces that haunt the Cecil Hotel and the mysteries that continue to baffle and terrify us to this day. But be warned, what you are about to hear is not for the faint of heart. Are you ready to journey with us into the heart of darkness? So join us, if you dare, as we explore the dark and twisted history of the Cecil Hotel, a place where nightmares become reality and the truth is often stranger than fiction. Throughout the ages, man has repeated the same earnest saying, more of a question really, or perhaps even a plea. If these walls could talk, But what if they do, and always have? Perhaps their stories, memories, and messages are all around us, if only we would take the moment to listen. On this podcast, we reinvestigate legends and tales of the past, and allow the echoes of their lessons to live on once again, informing us, educating us, and sharing new and unique insight into the inner workings of the paranormal and spiritual world. Will you dare to listen? This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Los Angeles, 1919. In the early 20th century, Los Angeles was undergoing a period of rapid growth and change. The population was booming as people flocked to the city in search of opportunity and a new way of life. With the rise of the film industry in Hollywood, Los Angeles became known as the entertainment capital of the world, and people from all over the globe were drawn to the city's glamour and excitement. From the Cecil Hotel's grand opening in 1927, it quickly became a hotspot for Hollywood elites, including the likes of Marilyn Monroe, but it wasn't all glitz and glamour. The hotel had a darker side, earning a reputation for suicides, murders, and other sinister happenings. The Cecil Hotel, also known as the Hotel Cecil, was built in 1924 in the heart of downtown Los Angeles by hotelier William Banks Hanner, who spent $1 million on its creation. Designed by Lloyd L. Hampton, the 14-story hotel was a marvel of its time. With 700 guest rooms, a grand marble lobby, and state-of-the-art amenities, it was a shining beacon of luxury and elegance. However... Its location in the heart of Skid Row, an area known for poverty, crime, and homelessness, would soon prove to be a major factor in the hotel's dark and troubled history. The Cecil Hotel was built during a time of great growth and expansion in Los Angeles, with many new buildings and structures popping up around the city. However, its location in Skid Row was an area of controversy from the start. Despite its opulent design and luxurious amenities, the hotel was situated in the most impoverished and crime-ridden area of the city. 
Its location would become a key factor in the hotel's notoriety and its reputation for being a magnet for crime and tragedy. When the Cecil Hotel opened its doors, it was intended to be a jewel of the downtown area, featuring a marble lobby, alabaster statues, and gorgeous stained glass windows, a towering edifice of Art Deco design. With its 700 rooms, each room in the hotel boasted elegantly appointed furnishings, ornate wallpaper, and high-end amenities. From the rooftop garden to the opulent ballroom, the Cecil Hotel was the epitome of glamour and sophistication, attracting some of the wealthiest and most influential people of the time. As you stepped inside the grand lobby, you were greeted with the soothing sounds of a cascading fountain and the warm glow of chandeliers overhead. The hotel's plush carpets were soft underfoot, and the air was redolent with the fragrance of fresh flowers expertly arranged by the hotel staff. For the lucky guests who could afford to stay at the Cecil Hotel, it was a paradise on earth, a place where dreams came true and anything was possible. But Henner would quickly come to regret his investment. The Great Depression of the 1930s hit the United States hard, and its impact could be seen everywhere, including in the once glamorous city of Los Angeles. The economic downturn forced many people out of work and onto the streets, creating a homeless population that was concentrated in an area known as Skid Row. The Cecil Hotel, which had just opened its doors a few years prior, found itself located right in the heart of this area. As Skid Row grew, so too did the Cecil's reputation as a place where the downtrodden and desperate could find a cheap place to stay. The hotel's opulent design, which had once been a source of pride, now seemed out of place amidst the poverty and squalor that surrounded it. Despite this, the Cecil continued to attract guests, both those who had fallen on hard times and those who were simply looking for a bargain. But with the increase in transient guests came a corresponding rise in crime and violence. Prostitution, drug use, and other illicit activities became commonplace at the hotel, and it wasn't long before the Cecil had developed a reputation as a place where anything could happen, and often did. Skid Row is considered by many to be one of the poorest places on planet Earth, and has existed within the confines of downtown Los Angeles for well over a hundred years. Currently, it is estimated that about 8,000 to 10,000 homeless individuals call the streets of Skid Row home. Even for a city like Los Angeles, almost all of the shelters and missions dedicated to helping the homeless population are all located in this one area. So even if you are searching for support and a chance at a better life, Skid Row is among the only options available to you turning it into a dumping ground for people released from prisons and mental institutions in an attempt to keep them separate from the rest of the population of Los Angeles. Skid Row truly became what it is today after policies were released in the 1970s. Policies of containment by forcing homeless and transient individuals into the blocks of Skid Row with literal police barricades to prevent them from extending beyond its borders into the rest of the city. But within its walls, Skid Row is the Wild West. Anything goes and chaos reigns. As an area primarily inhabited by the mentally ill and drug addicted, violence, especially between law enforcement and its residents, is constant 
and extreme. The Cecil Hotel calls these ravaged streets home. It is well known that throughout history, hotels have been a destination for people to take their own lives. For some, it's a way to escape their troubles or to end their pain. For others, it's a tragic accident or the result of foul play. Whatever the reason, hotels have seen their fair share of death, and the Cecil is no different. From suicides to murders, the hotel's walls have been witness to some of the most tragic and disturbing deaths in history. And while some of these deaths may have been intentional, others were simply the result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But one thing is for certain. The Cecil's reputation as a hotel of death is not without merit. In the 1930s alone, the Cecil Hotel was home to at least six reported suicides. A few residents ingested poison, while others shot themselves, slit their own throats, or jumped out of their bedroom windows. On January 22, 1927, a 52-year-old man took his own life in the evening by shooting himself in the head while inside his hotel room after failing to reconcile with his wife and child. The Los Angeles Times reported that he was rushed to the receiving hospital with a slim chance of survival and died the same evening. Only a couple years later, on November 19, 1931, a 46-year-old Manhattan Beach resident named W.K. Norton was found dead in his room after ingesting poison capsules. Only a week prior, he had checked into the Cecil under the name James Willies from Chicago. The following year, in September of 1932, a 25-year-old named Benjamin Dodich was discovered by a maid with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He left no suicide note. In 1934, Army Sergeant Louis D. Borden, who was 53, slashed his throat with a razor. Borden left several notes, one of which cited poor health as the reason for his suicide. A 25-year-old woman named Grace E. Margot fell from a ninth-story window in March of 1937. Her fall was broken by telephone wires which were wrapped around her body. She later died at the now-demolished Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, and police were unable to determine whether Margot's death was the result of an accident or suicide. In 1938, Roy Thompson of the Marine Corps jumped from atop the Cecil Hotel and was found on the skylight of a neighboring building. He was 35. A teacher named Dorothy Seeger registered at the hotel under the pseudonym Evelyn Brent and ingested poison on January 10, 1940, while staying at the Cecil and was reported by the Los Angeles Times to be near death. Beforehand, Seeger sent her relatives a note indicating she was going to end her life. Dorothy eventually succumbed to the effects of the poisoning and died two days later at the General Hospital on January 12, 1940. The next few decades only saw more violent deaths. In September 1944, 19-year-old Dorothy Jean Purcell awoke in the middle of the night with stomach pains while she was staying at the Cecil with her partner, Ben Levine, who was 38. She went to the bathroom so as not to disturb a sleeping Levine and, to her complete and total shock, gave birth to a baby boy on the floor of the bathroom. She had had no idea that she had been pregnant. Mistakenly thinking her newborn was dead, Purcell threw her live baby out of the window and onto the roof of the building next door. 
At her trial for manslaughter, she was found not guilty of murder by reason of insanity and was admitted to a hospital for psychiatric treatment. In November 1947, a 35-year-old named Robert Smith leapt from the seventh floor, and on October 22, 1954, a 55-year-old Helen Gurney leapt from the seventh floor as well. Gurney, a San Francisco stationary firm employee, landed directly on top of the Cecil's marquee. One week prior, she had registered at the hotel under the name Margaret Brown. Julia Francis Moore jumped from the window of her eighth-floor room on February 11, 1962, and landed in a second-store interior light well. She did not leave a suicide note. Among her possessions were a bus ticket from St. Louis, 59 cents in change, and an Illinois bank book showing a balance of $1,800. She was 50 years old. October 12, 1962, 65-year-old George Gianni was walking by the Cecil with his hands in his pockets when he was struck to death by a falling woman. Pauline Otten, 27, jumped from her ninth-floor window after an argument with her estranged husband, Dewey. Her fall killed both her and Gianni instantly. Police initially thought the two had committed suicide together, but reconsidered when they found Gianni was still wearing shoes. If he had jumped, his shoes would certainly have fallen off mid-flight. In light of the suicide, mishaps, and murders, Los Angelinos promptly dubbed the Cecil the most haunted hotel in Los Angeles. And these are just the deaths that we know about. There's no telling the countless others that have gone undocumented or covered up in the veritable spree of crime and darkness that have taken up residence in the hotel in the nearly hundred years since its opening. Many of the most notorious deaths at the Cecil remain unsolved to this day. Take the case of 65-year-old Goldie Osgood. On June 4, 1964, the body of Pigeon Goldie Osgood, also known as the Pigeon Lady, was found in her room at the Cecil Hotel. Osgood was a well-known and beloved figure in the Skid Row area, where she lived a simple life feeding and caring for the pigeons in the nearby Pershing Square. A retired telephone operator, Goldie was discovered in her room and had been raped, stabbed, and beaten, and her room was ransacked. Near her body was the Los Angeles Dodgers cap she always wore and a paper sack full of birdseed. Hours after her murder, a 27-year-old named Jacques Eilinger was seen walking through Pershing Square in bloodstained clothing. He was arrested and charged with Osgood's murder, but was later cleared of the crime. Her murder remains unsolved. In 2015, while researching the Cecil Hotel for an article, researcher Hadley Mears claimed that in 1947, Elizabeth Short, dubbed the Black Dahlia in the media, was rumored to have been seen drinking at Cecil's bar in the days before her notorious and unsolved murder. However, this claim appears to be nothing more than the retelling of a long-forgotten falsehood that first appeared in a 1995 column written by Los Angeles Times columnist Steve Harvey. Without verifying the claim, Harvey had quoted Ken Schessler, author of the book This is Hollywood, as saying, quote, On January 11, 1947, just three days before she was murdered, the Black Dahlia was seen in the bar at the Cecil Hotel with a girlfriend and two sailors. Schessler then added, quote, 
In fact, the hotel and the bars in the same block, including the dugout next door, were some of Elizabeth Short's favorite hangouts during the week before she was killed. However, according to LAPD records, Short was last seen alive at the Millennium Biltmore Hotel on January 9th and was not seen again until her body was discovered in an empty field on January 15th. What connection her death may have had to the Cecil is not known. But what is known is that she was found on a street not far away on the morning of January 15th with her mouth carved ear to ear and her body cut in two. But the Cecil has also been called the place where serial killers, quote, let their hair down. In the 1980s, the home was the temporary residence of serial killer Richard Ramirez, nicknamed the Night Stalker. Officials in Los Angeles are offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the so-called Night Stalker. He's the sadistic killer wanted for a series of murders and rapes, KNBC's Phil Schumann reports. The same man is suspected in six to eight murders and 25 to 30 attacks. Now dubbed the Night Stalker, the crime spree covers 50 miles. Callers are flooding the sheriff's department with reported sightings, but so far, no solid leads. We do not have anything of substance as of yet, uh, and absolutely nothing uh, that indicates that, that the uh, suspect uh, is close to being apprehended. Ramirez was a regular presence on the Skid Row area of Los Angeles, and according to a hotel clerk who claims to have spoken to him, Ramirez is rumored to have stayed at the Cecil for a few weeks. Ramirez engaged in most of, if not all of, his killing spree of 13 people while staying there. So casual was Ramirez about his deeds that he'd sometimes lounge around in the homes of his victims, partaking of snacks from the fridge while soaked in their blood. He also burglarized their homes, stealing cash and valuables, and in some instances, even body parts. Just thinking of Richard Ramirez, allegedly bringing eyeballs of his victims back into his filthy room at the Cecil, chills me to the bone, which is exactly what he did after shooting and stabbing Maxine Lavinia Zazara, a 44-year-old woman, in 1985. He would reportedly strip off his bloody clothes in the alley outside the building before climbing the interior stairs to his residence in his blood-stained underwear. At the time, Ramirez was able to stay there for a mere $14 a night, and with corpses of junkies reportedly often found in the alleys near the hotel, and sometimes even in the hallways, Ramirez's blood-soaked lifestyle surely raised nary an eyebrow at the Cecil. On August 30th, 1985, a group of Los Angeles residents spotted him in the street and prevented him from escaping until police arrived to arrest him. It was the moment the about-to-be-convicted killer did not want to face. You give up your right to be present while the verdicts are read here in open court. Yes. The judge granted the request, and over the intercom to his holding cell, Richard Ramirez heard the verdicts. Guilty of murder. Thirteen murders. Guilty of rape. Eleven sex crimes. Guilty of burglary at the residence and dwelling house. Nineteen additional felonies. Guilty. Guilty on all counts. Legal proceedings against the devil-worshipping drifter began four years ago. Early on, he had displayed a satanic symbol and proclaimed, Hail Satan. Hail Satan. 
prosecution presented 138 witnesses, their testimony filling 8,000 pages, but never did the jury hear from Ramirez himself. In count 32 of the information, fix the penalty, therefore, at death. After a circus-like trial in which Ramirez reveled in the spotlight, Ramirez was convicted of 13 murders and sentenced to death, although he would ultimately die of cancer in 2013. The presence of notorious serial killer Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, at the Cecil Hotel in the mid-1980s is a chilling indication of the type of place that it was. His presence at the hotel is just one of many dark and disturbing incidents that have taken place there over the years. The fact that a serial killer was able to find refuge at the Cecil, even briefly, speaks to the seedy and dangerous reputation that the hotel had garnered. It's a place where the worst of humanity seemed to converge, and the Night Stalker's presence is a haunting reminder of that. At the Cecil, though, his horrific memory lived on. Just a short time later, Austrian Jack Unterweger lived at the hotel for a time and was a journalist assigned to research the red light districts of Los Angeles. Only blocks away between San Pedro and Central was a stretch colloquially known as the Ho Stroll, where hookers and prostitutes would always be gathered for their business. Jack quickly began to delve deep into how the police dealt with street prostitution in Los Angeles and even arranged for a drive-along with the LAPD, fully immersing himself into the underbelly and regularly inviting prostitutes into his room. In a shockingly dark twist of irony, Jack was a convicted killer, pimp, and rapist himself. Authorities believe he chose the location of the Cecil Hotel intentionally as a dark homage of sorts to Ramirez, whose crimes in subsequent celebrity were thoroughly attractive to Unterweger. In 1974, Unterweger was convicted of the murder of a young woman while in Austria and sentenced to life in prison. While in prison, he became an avid reader and began writing poetry and novels. He was a well-known literary figure and was even praised by some as a voice of the downtrodden and marginalized. In 1990, after serving 15 years in prison, Unterweger was released on parole and soon after began a killing spree that would last over a year. His victims were primarily prostitutes, many of whom he had paid for sex before strangling them with their own bras. Using a special type of ligature made from bras, he would strangle his victims to the point of unconsciousness, and then allow them to come to again, so he could do it repeatedly until death. Unterweger would then stage their bodies in suggestive poses, sometimes leaving notes or items behind as if to taunt the police. Shortly afterward, Jack fleed to America, where the murders began to pick up in Los Angeles instead. He eventually murdered at least three street prostitutes during his time at the Cecil Hotel, the perfect area to scout his desired victims. In 1992, Unterweger was finally apprehended in Miami, Florida, after a routine traffic stop led to the discovery of a murder weapon and other incriminating evidence in his rental car. He was extradited back to Austria, where he was tried and convicted of nine murders and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Unterweger's case has been the subject of numerous books, documentaries, and films, with many people fascinated by the intersection of his literary fame and his gruesome crimes. 
Some have even speculated that his writing and public persona may have played a role in his ability to evade capture for as long as he did. Despite being behind bars, Unterweger continued to write and publish while in prison. He became something of a cause célèbre among some members of the literary community who argued that his work deserved to be judged separately from his crimes. However, many others saw him as a monster who had used his talents as a writer to gain sympathy and manipulate those around him. Jack Unterweger committed suicide in his cell in 1994, just a few years after his capture and conviction. His story continues to captivate and horrify people around the world, a cautionary tale of the dangers of charisma and the thin line between artistic brilliance and monstrous behavior. Yet again, the story of Jack Unterweger tells a terrifying tale of the darkness and lack of safety that surrounds the Cecil Hotel. As we dive deeper into the dark history of the Cecil, we come across a story that has captivated the world for years. Arguably the most obsessively followed case of the last century, it is a tale of a young woman named Elisa Lamb, whose disappearance and tragic death have left us truly at a loss for any explanation. The story of Elisa Lamb is one that has inspired countless theories, sparked international interest, and continues to puzzle us to this day. If you probably couldn't tell, I'm obsessed with creating podcasts. As I've grown as a creator, I needed a hosting and distribution platform that's capable of growing alongside me. So that's why I use Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has already helped over 100,000 people make, distribute, grow, and monetize their show. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Podcasting shouldn't be hard if you work with the right partners, and that's why I love Buzzsprout. Don't wait. Get your message out into the world today by using my affiliate link in the show notes and get a $20 Amazon gift card. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping people like you succeed and achieve all of your podcasting goals. Join the over 100,000 of us already using Buzzsprout to get our message out and watch your show take off. See you out there, creators. Lurker, reader, stalker, whoever is interested in the trials and tribulations of my fascinating life. There's a wider world out there, and I've only seen a fraction of it. I'm very excited. I'll be seeing new places and hopefully meet some interesting and nice people. I'd be fine with a stranger talking to me, but I'm not very conscious of what I'm saying most of the time. I take things too far, and I have no filter. It seems I always make my biggest mistakes at the worst possible times. My mouth is my downfall, and it will get me in trouble. In January of 2013, 
Alisa Lam checked into the Cecil Hotel. She was a 21-year-old student from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, on a solo trip to Los Angeles. She had chosen the Cecil for its affordability, its location, and its history, unaware of the dark secrets that lurked within its walls. She was known to be a creative and free-spirited person with a passion for art and writing. Lamb's online presence was indicative of her quirky and insightful personality as she often shared her thoughts and musings on social media and her personal blog. Bless the internet. The internet doesn't really have any consequences, at least on Tumblr, I hope. People can really be themselves. It makes more sense to write candidly here than a journal, probably because you know someone's actually listening to your random thoughts. Also, my handwriting is terrible, and I type way faster than I write. Also, this is way cheaper than paying for a therapist. Also, I get intense satisfaction when I click publish. Lamb was an active user of Tumblr, where she posted under the username Nouvelle Nouveau. Her posts on Tumblr were often deep and philosophical, showcasing her poetic style of writing. Her posts were accompanied by original illustrations and photos, highlighting her artistic abilities. She also shared personal details about her life, including her struggles with mental health. Stressed about university? Somehow we're supposed to jump into some sort of maturity right after leaving high school? You enter a crash course into the shithole that is figuring out what the hell you want out of life. Damn it, people. We're trying to figure things out. On her blog, Lamb wrote about her experiences with depression and bipolar disorder and her efforts to manage her conditions. Depression sucks. Period. If someone says to you that they have depression, don't ask why. There is no why. Tell them every day you love them. Remind them every day it will get better. She often wrote about the challenges of navigating mental health care and her hopes for a brighter future. Her writing was introspective and honest, offering a glimpse into her inner, often troubled world. I suppose we roam on the internet because we aren't able to find in our physical lives the human connection we need for survival. So we search endlessly online, alone, it is somewhat reassuring that there is someone listening, even if you are all strangers and know these personal things. Lamb's social media presence and writing show that she was a thoughtful and introspective person with a creative and curious spirit. Her passion for self-expression and desire to connect with others through her writing make her story all the more tragic. She planned a West Coast tour through California to help her process some of her emotions and determine what path she might take for her future. January 28th, 2013. Arrived in La La Land, and the rest is to be written. Eliza checked into the Cecil Hotel with the intention of staying there for four days. She was assigned to room 506, which was a female bunk room with community toilets and showers down the hall. Eliza Lamb's parents had every reason to be worried when she didn't call on January 31st. The 21-year-old student had been a prolific user of social media, posting frequent updates on her travels and her life. 
She had been documenting her trip to California on her Tumblr page, sharing pictures of the places she visited and her thoughts on the sights and sounds of the city. But suddenly, all communications stopped. Her family knew immediately that something was wrong. Yesterday, uh, we were made aware of robbery homicide of a missing persons case, Elisa Lamb. Uh, she was last seen on the 31st at the Cecil Hotel at 640 South Main Street. Uh, so right now we're asking your help. Uh, we have a photo. Parents are here. They've flown down from Vancouver. And we're seeking to get this photo out so we can uh, find Elisa. The Los Angeles Police Department was called in to investigate Eliza's disappearance. The case quickly became a top priority with 18 detectives assigned to the case. The family worked closely with the investigators, providing any information that might be helpful to locate Elisa. They had one crucial piece of information, the last place she had been seen, the Cecil Hotel. Investigators arrived to check Elisa's room on February 1st, the day she was reported missing and the day she was intended to check out, only to discover that the hotel staff had already removed all of her personal belongings from the room. Her laptop, prescriptions, wallet, and clothing had all been left behind, locked away carefully in hotel storage with other people's personal items that had been left behind. The room showed no evidence of forced entry and nothing that led the hotel staff to consider foul play at the time. The investigation into Eliza's disappearance was intensive, with detectives interviewing guests, the 50 employees on staff, and reviewing surveillance footage found from the hotel's cameras. However, as time went on and no new leads were found, the case quickly began to grow cold. Theories abounded as to where Elisa might be or what happened to her. One theory suggested that she may have left the hotel on her own accord and was living off the grid somewhere in Los Angeles. This was based on reports that Lamb had been experiencing mental health issues and had a history of wandering off. Another theory was that she had been abducted by a third party, possibly someone she had met on her travels or a hotel staff member. The search for Elisa Lamb was complicated by the fact that the Cecil Hotel had very few cameras, and those that did exist were of poor quality and often poorly aimed. The floor where Elisa was staying didn't even have one at all, so searching for a needle in a haystack doesn't even come close to the task that fell to the investigators. The Los Angeles Police Department was tasked with combing through hundreds of hours of footage across multiple cameras, minute for minute and second for second. This was no easy task, as the footage was often blurry, grainy, and difficult to decipher. The search was made even more difficult by the fact that much of the footage was not time-stamped, so investigators had to rely on visual cues to piece together a timeline of events. Only one camera was pointed at the elevators, and it captured footage that would later shock the world. The investigation into Elisa Lamb's disappearance took a shocking turn when the police tumbled upon footage of her in the elevator at the Cecil Hotel. Thrilled to finally find some form of lead, they continued to watch only to find themselves at a complete loss as to what they were seeing in front of them. In the video, Lamb can be seen frantically pressing buttons, looking as though she is hiding from something or someone. 
She steps in and out of the elevator, sometimes peeking out and gesturing with her arms. The eerie footage, along with Lamb's strange behavior, left investigators scratching their heads and fueled speculation online. The elevator footage became the most significant clue in the search for Elisa Lamb. It proved, once and for all, that she never left the hotel. Where was she? They scoured the hotel, searching every room and conducting a thorough investigation of the building and its staff. Scent tracking dogs were led throughout the hotel, eventually locating her scent and leading investigators down the hall to the fire escape off the fifth floor. But from there, the scent was lost. Air support with floodlights and investigators scoured the roof and had nothing to show for their efforts. With no other evidence to go on, the case began to go cold once again. It seemed as if Elisa Lamb had simply vanished into thin air. The following morning, after a top-to-bottom search of the Cecil Hotel, the LAPD was faced with yet another massive issue requiring nearly all of their available manpower. A manhunt is underway in Southern California and the Los Angeles Police Department is under siege. 10,000 law enforcement officers are conducting door-to-door searches for one of their own, a fugitive ex-cop. 33-year-old Christopher Jordan Dorner is suspected of killing three people in a terrifying rampage after making claims in a bizarre online manifesto that he was unjustly fired by the LAPD and needs to clear his name. In a police department with a storied and troubled history, they have never seen anything like this before. Here's ABC's David Wright with the latest. Central Audio Units, Seed Info, reference 1199 for LAPD. Over the past 24 hours, a deadly manhunt across this whole region. Suspect vehicle still outstanding. It's a black Nissan Titan. Police officers hunting one of their own. A rogue former officer now accused of hunting them. Of course he knows what he's doing. We trained him. Uh, He was also a member of the armed forces. Uh, It is extremely uh, uh, worrisome and scary. The next morning it was decided that only four of the original 18 investigators would remain on the Elisa Lam case, while the rest were transferred to the cop killer investigation, which was considered a higher priority. This diversion of resources ultimately had a significant impact on the investigation into Lamb's disappearance, delaying the search for her and causing frustration and concern for her family and the public. With no new leads and a significant lack of manpower to continue the investigation, it was determined that the video discovered of Elisa in the elevator would be shared with the public in the hopes that they might catch something the detectives had missed. Quickly, the video went viral online, with people around the world trying to decipher what exactly was happening in the footage. However, the footage was also a double-edged sword. While it provided a glimpse into her behavior in the final moments before her disappearance, it also led to a wide range of theories and speculation. Some believed that the video was proof that Lamb was being pursued by someone, while others suggested that she was experiencing some form of mental breakdown. There were even wild theories that she was playing a game of hide-and-seek, the elevator game based from Korea, or under the influence of drugs. While only a four-minute video, a shocking amount happens in the span of what seems like just a moment. In the video, 
The elevator door slowly opens, and Elisa Lamb enters the frame. Swinging one arm, she bends over casually to look at the panel of buttons on the right side of the frame. She begins pushing the buttons for the entire center row of elevator keys, and then quickly backs into the far corner of the elevator. At this moment, she appears relaxed and not distressed. When nothing happens to the elevator for several moments, she slowly steps forward, then lunging, pokes her head out of the elevator door and quickly whips her head both ways as though looking for something or someone, and then retreats back to the rear of the elevator car, still watching earnestly at the doors. She then shuffles into the corner of the elevator nearest the panel of buttons, now displaying body language that reads of fear or avoidance of something hunting her. When more moments pass and the elevator still seems to not be responding, the doors remaining open and the car refusing to move, she shuffles back towards the entrance, hands clasped together in front of her near her waist, as though attempting to make herself smaller. She stares for a moment around the corner to her right, which is out of frame. Taking one tentative step forward, she leaves the elevator and steps back into the hallway. Then things get weirder. She begins making strange steps, almost in a square dance motion. One step to the left, then the right foot moves in to join the left, then one step back into the elevator again. These steps eventually taking her out of the elevator and slightly to the left of the doorway, leaving the side of her arm as all that is still visible. Still, the elevator refuses to move. Why isn't it moving? She begins making strange and wild gestures, returning to the elevator car and pushing nearly every single button on the panel. Running her fingers through her hair in a gesture of anxiety or stress, she once again steps out of the elevator. Her hands begin combing through the air in a strange manner, as though trying to touch something in front of her, or perhaps as though she's using her hands to explain something we can't hear on the video, or acting something out to the emptiness. For all intents and purposes, it appears as though she's casting a spell, or moving in an almost ritualistic manner, before she begins clearly counting on her fingers. The behavior is wildly bizarre and disturbing. And then, just as shockingly as Elisa appears in the frame, she steps to the left of the elevator and is gone. One might think this would be the end of the video, but there's more. In fact, it's only 2 minutes and 30 seconds into a 4 minute video, and Elisa has already vanished from the footage entirely. For some strange reason, the police felt the need to release this along with the rest of the footage of her. Suddenly, the door to the empty elevator finally closes, and then suddenly opens again. It's almost like a mini ghost story crammed into four minutes of bewildering security footage. Suddenly again, the door closes, and the elevator resumes its normal operation. Something truly dark, bizarre, and potentially supernatural is occurring in this video. Everyone who watched this video immediately knew the haunting context of it. They were looking at potentially the very last moments of a woman who still hadn't been found. 
Despite the intense interest in the video, it was not enough to help the police locate Lamb. To a new development now in the search for a woman missing in California, a Vancouver woman. The LAPD has released bizarre surveillance footage of 21-year-old Elisa Lamb. She disappeared early, uh, nearly three weeks ago. CTV Scott Roberts is tracking this tonight. And Scott, first off, the video was taken uh, some time ago. Yeah, Mike, this video was actually captured a few weeks ago when Lamb first went missing. Police are showing us now basically because they're at a standstill in this case and they're hoping to generate some new tips. Now, let's take a look at the footage that is, by all accounts, quite bizarre. It shows 21-year-old Elisa Lamb acting erratically, getting into an elevator and pressing several buttons. At one point, she appears to hide and also gets in and out of that elevator a number of times. Police say the footage is from a security camera at the Cecil Hotel, where the UBC student was supposed to be staying. It was taken at the beginning of Lamb's trip to Los Angeles, just before she went missing. We are concerned because I don't know if she's acting on her own or there's some outside influence outside the elevator. So anything is possible. So we take all that into consideration. And police are worried that foul play could be involved. They tell us they got several tips immediately after this story made headlines about a week ago. But since then, they've really hit a roadblock. They're hoping anyone with information comes forward now. Mike Tamir. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott. The elevator footage of Elisa Lamb has been scrutinized extensively, with investigators attempting to piece together any clues they can from the bizarre behavior captured on camera. The footage shows Lamb entering the elevator and appearing to push buttons for multiple floors, but the elevator doesn't move. She then backs into the corner of the elevator and appears to be looking out the door, possibly searching for someone. Her behavior becomes increasingly erratic, with strange hand gestures and seemingly talking to herself. Investigators noted that Lamb's behavior seemed to suggest that she was experiencing some kind of mental breakdown, perhaps. However, they also noted some odd details in the footage, such as the fact that the elevator doors remain open for an unusually long time, and that the buttons for the floors she pressed didn't seem to be registering. This has led to increased speculation that there might have been foul play involved, or that Lamb may have been under the influence of drugs. It is evident that she appears to be steady on her feet throughout the video, making it unlikely that alcohol could be the cause for the erratic behavior. Lamb wrote herself in her Tumblr that she never experienced or experimented with drugs or alcohol, but a 21-year-old alone in Los Angeles, it wouldn't be wildly outside of the realm of possibility for her to be experiencing or experimenting with something new. However, in the toxicology report released after her autopsy, nothing was found in her system outside of her normal medication. Ultimately, the footage has proven to be a haunting piece of evidence that has left yet more questions than answers. The bizarre and confusing timestamp on the Lisa Lamb elevator video has been a subject of much confusion and speculation since its release. The video itself has no legible timestamp, but the metadata that came with the video release stated that it was shot on February 1st, 2013 at 10.31 a.m. Some have suggested that the timestamp blurry at best, may be incorrect or even more concerning, redacted. Web sleuths have theorized that perhaps the video was actually shot at a later time, perhaps after Elisa's disappearance. This theory is based on the fact that the timestamp appears to be overlaid on the video with something else and could have been added later. 
Some have suggested that the timestamp may be accurate, but that the time on the hotel's surveillance system was off by several hours, leading to confusion about the exact time the video was shot. The timestamp very well may have been tampered with, or altered in some way. The timing of the elevator video has also been a topic of controversy and confusion. Many have pointed out that at moments, the timing of the video seems to fluctuate, with some movements appearing slower than they should be, as if the video were playing at normal speeds and then slowing down. Additionally, some parts of the video appear to be missing, leading some to believe that portions of the video have been edited out. There is a clear cut where the elevator door seems to jump about six inches while closing near the end of the film. The cut occurs just after Elisa exits the elevator and before the door closes completely. It has been suggested that this cut is evidence that the video has been edited or manipulated in some way, as there is no clear reason why the elevator door should jump like that. Some have theorized that the cut was made to remove footage of somebody else entering or leaving the elevator, or to hide something else that happened in the hallway outside the elevator. Moreover, in deciphering the illegible timestamp, web sleuths are convinced that there are 53 seconds of unaccounted-for footage missing from the released video. However, there has been no conclusive evidence to support any of these theories, and the cut remains a mystery. There are many conspiracy theories surrounding the Elisa Lam case, and one of the most popular is the idea that the management of the Cecil Hotel manipulated the elevator footage before it was handed over to the police. The suspicion arose due to the apparent time gaps and the inconsistencies found in the video, as well as the strange behavior of the elevator doors. Some people believe that the footage was deliberately edited to cover up what really happened to her and that the hotel management or an employee who knows what happened was involved in the cover-up. However, there still is no concrete evidence to support these theories, and it is possible that the anomalies in the footage are simply the result of technical issues or other factors. But I'm still led to wonder, what could be on that missing minute of footage? After the police were able to review the elevator footage, they returned to the Cecil Hotel to try and piece together the movements of Elisa Lam in the hours and days leading up to her disappearance. One of their main concerns was that Elisa may have been under the influence of drugs, which are, of course, readily available on the streets of Skid Row. They searched the hotel for any clues that could help them understand Elisa's behavior in the elevator and in her final moments. As part of their investigation, the police spoke to the two women who had been sharing a bunk with Elisa. They explained that she had been acting strangely in the days before her disappearance, and that they had asked her to move to a different room, the hotel transferring her from room 506B to 514. Elisa had been behaving in an erratic, paranoid, and unusual manner, and they were concerned that she may be a danger to herself or others. The police also learned that she had been taking medication for her mental health, having recently been diagnosed as bipolar, and they began to consider the possibility that she may have had a psychotic episode or manic breakdown that led to her disappearance. While investigators were busy combing through miles and miles of the building, along with countless hours of CCTV footage from the hotel, Amateur sleuths on the internet were scrutinizing the elevator video, looking for any clues that could help solve the case. The video quickly went viral, and theories and speculation began to spread online.
One of the most controversial and debated aspects of the Elisa Lam elevator footage is a single frame that some web sleuths believe shows a foot. The image appears to show what looks like a foot or shoe in the bottom of the frame as the elevator doors are closing. This has led some to believe that there was someone else present with Elisa in the elevator at the time, someone who maybe have been involved in her disappearance, perhaps even someone that was holding the call button, prohibiting the doors from closing and the elevator from moving. Many have even mapped her footsteps to prove that the placement of this bizarre object could not have been her own feet and must be the feet of someone else or something else. However, others have pointed out that the image is blurry and the quality of the footage is poor, making it difficult to definitively identify the object in question as a foot or anything else. Some have suggested that it could simply be a reflection or a glitch in the camera. Despite this, the possibility of someone else being present in the elevator has only added to the mystery and speculation surrounding the case. I must say, when identifying that frame of footage, it does seem very clear that the object disappears by moving out of frame. It is very suspicious and very strange. Perhaps there was someone or something outside the elevator all along. February 19th, 2013. 19 days since Elisa's disappearance. Nearly three weeks after Elisa's disappearance, the investigation took a chilling turn. Mike and Sabina Baugh from Plymouth, United Kingdom, who were visiting Los Angeles and staying as guests at the Cecil Hotel, began complaining about extremely low water pressure and a foul taste to their water about five days into their stay. It came through the faucet brown and discolored. After complaining, the staff moved them to a room about two floors up. When a maintenance worker investigated the hotel's water tanks on the roof, he made a gruesome discovery. After climbing the ladder to access the hatch at the top of the water tank, he peered inside. There, floating in one of the water tanks, face up, was the body of Elisa Lamb. She was completely white, well into decomposition and naked, her clothes resting at the bottom of the tank. Immediately, hundreds of investigators and detectives descended on the scene. It's not common for the body of a missing woman to be found almost three weeks later, floating in a water tank on top of a building in downtown Los Angeles, and with no explanation as to why she was there in the first place. We begin with a disturbing development in the search for a young Vancouver woman in Los Angeles. Nearly three weeks after Elisa Lam went missing, a body has been found in a water tank on the roof of her hotel. The coroner now has it. So at this point, it's the coroner's case until the person's identified and we know the cause of death. So this means we don't know how this woman died or if this is foul play, and those answers may take a few days. Tamara? All right, thanks a lot for this, Sinjin. The police arrived at the scene quickly and began their investigation. They climbed up to the roof of the hotel and carefully removed Elisa's body from the water tank. It was a heartbreaking sight. The young woman's body was limp and lifeless, and it was clear that she had been dead for some time. 
As the police continued their investigation, they quickly realized that there were a number of odd and disturbing circumstances surrounding Elise's death. For starters, there was no apparent reason for her to be on the roof in the first place. The roof was supposed to be locked and off-limits to guests, so how did she get up there? And why was she in the water tank? And for how long? Well, let's start with the actual murder case, uh, the actual case itself. I can't call it murder because what the LAPD is saying is they're treating this as a suspicious death. They are not calling it a homicide. What they will tell us is that Lamb, a resident of Vancouver, Canada, came down here as a tourist. She arrived in Los Angeles on January 26th. Well, on January 31st, she went missing. She was last seen here at the Cecil Hotel. You've seen that surveillance video. You've seen pictures that the LAPD has sent out of her. Then yesterday, the maintenance worker responding to some concerns about some water problems at the hotel went and checked the rooftop's water tanks. There are four of them. When he looked in one of them, that's when he made the gruesome discovery. The fire department investigators have been here. They did identify her through body markings. At this point, the autopsy is still being conducted. Frederica still waiting for that. And here's what one couple from the U.K. told us. The water did have funny taste. It wasn't right. It, it, there was something wrong. The, the pressure in the water was terrible. The shower was awful. The water, and when you turned the tap on, the water was coming black first. The discovery sent shockwaves through the community, and the investigation into her death was reopened. Was it a tragic accident or something much more sinister? These were questions that the investigators, the public, and Elise's family all wanted answers to. There are several theories about how Elisa Lamb ended up in the water tank on the roof of the Cecil Hotel. One theory is that she climbed up to the roof herself and somehow fell into the tank. However, the rooftop door was supposed to be locked and armed, which makes this theory unlikely. Another theory is that someone put Elisa in the water tank. This could have been a hotel employee or another guest who had access to the roof. Some people have speculated that Elisa was murdered, and her body was placed in the tank to conceal evidence. There is also a theory that Elisa was experiencing a mental health crisis and climbed into the water tank for some unexplained reason herself. It's possible that she was hallucinating or disoriented and didn't realize what she was doing. However, this theory doesn't explain how she would have been able to lift the heavy lid on the tank by herself. Some people have suggested that Elisa was the victim of foul play, possibly as part of a larger conspiracy involving the hotel. However, there is no concrete evidence to support this theory either. The only evidence present was the body itself. Investigators decided to drain the tank and allow the body to slowly and softly land on the bottom. From there, they cut an access point to allow them to remove the body from the bottom of the tank. Investigators also searched the tank and surrounding area for fingerprints of a potential assailant, but nothing was found. Nothing about the scene told a story of violent crime. No physical evidence was present at all. 
Following the discovery of Elisa Lam's body in the water tank atop the Cecil Hotel, interest in the hotel exploded, as people from around the world became fascinated with the case. The internet was flooded with theories and speculation, as YouTubers and web sleuths wanted to try and solve the case themselves. As the investigation continued, more and more people became interested in the case, and the Cecil Hotel became something of a tourist attraction for true crime enthusiasts. Some even went so far as to book rooms at the hotel in order to experience its dark history for themselves. In the infamous elevator video of Elisa Lam, she is seen pushing the button for the 14th floor of the Cecil. However, the button immediately deilluminates, which leads many to believe that must have been the floor that Elisa was already on in the video. Regardless of which floor Elisa was actually on, it is clear from the video that she exits the elevator to the left and down the hall. This hall leads to the fire escape, which is believed to be possible access to the rooftop where the water tanks were located, and notably, also where the scent-tracking dog lost her trail. However, from here it's a nearly vertical climb up the ladder to the roof, 15 stories above the ground. Certainly not a climb for the faint of heart, and not one we'd expect from a petite 21-year-old visiting a strange city. There are two internal staircases that also access the roof, but both are advertised to be alarmed. However, there is great skepticism as to if those alarms were even working in the first place. Some have theorized that Elisa may have been trying to hide from someone or something, and that's why she took the fire escape instead of using the more conventional routes. Others believe that she may have been experiencing a mental health episode or was under the influence of drugs, which could explain her unusual behavior in the video, but is clearly discredited by the toxicology report. Regardless of how Elisa ended up on the rooftop, the question remains as to how she ended up inside one of the 10-foot-tall water tanks. The lids to these tanks are heavy, over 20 pounds each, and difficult to move. They aren't hinged, so it's literally a piece of square metal with a lip on it, which makes it unlikely that Elisa would have opened one by herself. And why would she have in the first place? Some have suggested that this proves someone else must have placed her inside the tank, either as a part of foul play or as part of a cover-up. According to investigators, the lid was found closed when she was discovered. There's absolutely no way for her to have been able to reach the lid to close it behind her from inside the tank. Someone else must have been involved. There is also the question of how Elisa's body remained undetected in the tank for as long as it did. The tanks are regularly inspected by maintenance workers, and it seems unlikely that her body could have gone unnoticed for weeks. Some have suggested that her body may have been placed in the tank after the initial investigations, while others have speculated that the workers may have been complicit in the cover-up. Elisa Lamb's autopsy revealed that there were no signs of physical trauma or sexual assault. The cause of her death was determined to be accidental drowning, and her manner of death was classified as undetermined. Typically, in a drowning, there may be foam in the airways of the deceased, or the lungs may be congested and filled with fluids. In the medical examination, neither of those telltale signs were present, however, that doesn't necessarily rule out accidental drowning either. However, her toxicology report did reveal that she had taken several prescription medications at therapeutic levels, including an antidepressant and an antipsychotic. 
The presence of these medications in her system led some to speculate that Elisa may have been experiencing a manic or psychotic episode at the time of her disappearance, which could have contributed to her erratic behavior in the elevator footage. Others have suggested that her medication regime may have contributed to her accidental drowning by impairing her judgment or coordination. However, again, it's worth noting that the amounts of medication found in her system were well within the normal therapeutic range and may not necessarily have been a contributing factor to her death. At the end of the autopsy, the body literally didn't answer any questions at all as to the mode of death or how long she was in the tank itself. Reading over the 24 pages of it myself, only one thing stood out to me as strange. The examiner describes how all of Elisa's wet clothing was covered in a sand-like particulate loosely found in the folds of the clothes. Now where in the world could that have come from? There are some who believe the LAPD purposefully delayed the discovery of Elisa Lamb's body in order to cover up their involvement in her death or to allow someone else to get away. This theory is largely based on the fact that the body was not discovered until several weeks after Lamb was reported missing, despite multiple searches of the hotel. The hotel staff and LAPD have both stated that they searched the hotel multiple times before finding the body, and it is possible that Lamb's body was simply well hidden. Additionally, there is no clear motive for the LAPD to cover up Lamb's death, as she was not a high-profile individual, and her death did not appear to be politically motivated. It is also worth noting that the LAPD has been criticized for their handling of the case, particularly in their slow response of information and lack of transparency surrounding the investigation. The case of Elisa Lam has drawn attention from all over the world due to its eerie similarities to the 2005 horror movie Dark Water. In the movie, a mother and daughter move into an apartment building only to discover that there is something sinister lurking in the water supply. The similarities between the two cases are striking. In both cases, there are issues with the water supply and the discovery of a body in a water tank. Additionally, there is the notion of a young woman being trapped in a dark, foreboding building surrounded by a sense of menace and dread. If you distill the movie down to its basic plot points, it perfectly tells the story of Elisa Lamb. Perhaps someone was deranged enough to try and commit murder based off of a movie or just a profound coincidence. While it's unlikely that the movie Darkwater had any direct influence on the events surrounding Elise Lamb's death, it's not hard to see how the movie could have captured the public's imagination and fueled speculation about the circumstances surrounding her demise. Perhaps among the most troubling explanations of all comes only days after her discovery in the water tank. Suddenly, and out of nowhere, Skid Row experiences a sudden outbreak of tuberculosis among the homeless population. To make matters even stranger, a test is rolled out to detect early signs of the disease. The name of it? The Lamb Elisa Test. The coincidence, if it is just one, is almost too bizarre to accept. It's too weird of a coincidence to overlook while wildly unbacked by any direct evidence but impossible to overlook. Web sleuths began to suggest that this proves some form of government conspiracy. Is it possible that Elisa Lam could have been an agent for some government agency or terrorist group sent to Los Angeles as a biological weapon to infect the homeless population? 
but perhaps she knew too much, or could expose whoever sent her there, and as such, was too much of a liability. Perhaps she needed to be taken out. Add on to that, the University of British Columbia where Elisa studied was a fairly well-known tuberculosis research center. As much as I personally can't imagine a world where this could be the true explanation, and as skeptical as I am, it is a really, really fucking weird set of coincidences that seem almost impossible to occur naturally in the world today. How can you explain that set of circumstances that you cannot ignore? The strange and eerie coincidences don't even end there. Among the last guaranteed places Elisa was seen alive in Los Angeles was at a bookstore called The Last Bookstore. Online sleuths discover that if you visit the website and search for the registrar information, a strange zip code shows up for the billing address. V5G4SL If you search that zip code in Google Maps, it brings up Barnaby, British Columbia. But more specifically, the pinpoint itself for the center of that town rests directly on the spot on the map where Elisa is buried. The connection between the zip code of the last bookstore and the cemetery where Elisa Lamb is buried is just one of the many eerie coincidences associated with this case. It is hard to ignore the fact that the bookstore itself is known for its maze-like design, and the Cecil Hotel is also known for its confusing layout. The last bookstore is a popular destination for book lovers and tourists, as it features a unique design with bookshelves made from repurposed materials, hidden rooms, and tunnels. Some people have even compared the design of the bookstore to a labyrinth, with twists and turns that can be disorienting for those unfamiliar with the layout. This has led some to draw parallels between the design of the bookstore and the layout of the Cecil Hotel, which also features a confusing, maze-like design. Whether or not there is a connection between these two locations remains unclear, but it's certainly an eerie coincidence. Some have even speculated that the bookstore may have been involved in the case, but there is no evidence to support this theory. Overall, the connection between the zip code of the last bookstore and the cemetery where Elisa Lamb is buried is just one of the many strange things in this case, adding to the mysterious and eerie nature of its story. The Cecil Hotel has been linked to a disturbing amount of dark happenings, ranging from suicides, murders, and drug overdoses. This has led many people to believe that there is something sinister about the hotel itself that draws these types of events to it. Some speculate that the hotel is cursed, haunted, or even built on top of a vortex of negative energy. Some believe there is something even more sinister at play. The hotel's history of violence and death has led many to consider that it is haunted by the ghosts of its past victims. Some have even reported paranormal activity at the hotel, including strange noises, unexplained movements, and ghostly apparitions. This belief that the hotel is a hub of dark energy, drawing in negative entities and energies from the surrounding area, could be due to the hotel's proximity to other dark landmarks in the area, such as the site of the Black Dahlia murder which occurred only a few miles away. Despite the numerous theories, the true cause of the Cecil Hotel's dark history remains a mystery. Whether it is cursed, 
haunted, or simply a product of its location and history, the hotel continues to draw interest from those who are fascinated by its eerie past. Pete Monzingo, a writer and comedian, lived across the street from the Cecil Hotel in 2016 to the present day. During his time living there, he has documented numerous eerie experiences that he believes were paranormal in nature. I live across the street from one of the most haunted hotels in the world. You know, no big deal. Even Ghost Adventures said this. The Cecil Hotel has proven to be one of the most haunted places we have ever investigated. So, I really wanted to talk about some of my stories and things that I've seen living across the street. The whole time I've been living here, the hotel has been closed. I feel like I'm a really good resource for the Cecil because I am literally here all the time watching. But I have experienced strange sightings, strange shadows, some of the lights started just turning on. There was a fan that turned on, a couple lights that turned on, and the next day they would be turned off. There'd be all these doors open and windows open. The next day it would shut. The curtains in different rooms are slightly different from day to day. And there is nobody going in or out of the hotel. I posted this video on TikTok. Here's a clip of it. I saw in the hotel there was an old man smoking a cigarette staring at me. And I remember thinking, maybe he's not. How can he even see me? It's pitch black. So I decided to run to the other side of my apartment to see if his head were to follow me, and it did. So he was looking at me, and I freaked out, jumped behind the couch to hide, and in that moment I realized that the Hotel Cecil hasn't even been open for years. It's like practically boarded up right now. I went to peek one more time and he was gone. I'm pretty sure it wasn't my imagination, but I mean, who knows? And then another time, I look out my window and I see a shadow. Immediately, I thought, that's somebody hanging. But I didn't call 911 because I didn't know if it was real. The hotel has been locked up for years, so if I'm calling the cops, they're gonna be like, there's nobody who lives here and you're on drugs. And then I came back to the window at one point later in the day and the shadow wasn't there anymore. So I have no idea what I saw, if it was real, if it was, I just, I just have no idea. There's another experience I had here at my apartment and I had a water bottle like this. It was just sitting on the TV and it went shot from one side of the room all the way to the other. And I immediately looked at the Cecil Hotel. I was like, the Cecil! <laughs> then I burned stage, you know. I'm always really scared to even talk about the Cecil Hotel because I feel like the ghosts are listening. And at one time, the fire alarm was going off. Like I said, no one's in there. So why is the fire alarm going off? So I was telling my friend about this, and right when I had said I was scared because I feel like the ghosts are gonna listen, my fire alarm and just my unit went off. <sighs> just got goosebumps. Burning Sage! <laughs> I just wanna let everybody know that right after I said that, the camera died. <sighs> I need to stop talking about the Cecil Hotel. Monzingo's experiences are not unique with the Cecil. Many people who have lived near or visited the Cecil have reported strange occurrences and a feeling of unease. Whatever the cause, the Cecil remains a place of fascination and intrigue for those interested in the paranormal. The fifth season of the hit TV series American Horror Story was titled Hotel, and it drew direct inspiration from the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles. The show's creators Ryan Murphy and Brad Fulchuk drew heavily from the history of the Cecil Hotel to create a chilling and terrifying story of murder, ghosts, and the supernatural. In the show, the Hotel Cortez is the setting of the story, 
and it is portrayed as a grand but sinister hotel in downtown Los Angeles. The hotel is known for its dark past, which includes serial killers, ghostly apparitions, and strange, unexplainable circumstances. One of the key inspirations for the show was the story of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, who stayed at the hotel during his murder spree in the mid-1980s. Ramirez is portrayed in the show as a ghostly presence who haunts the hotel and its guests, seeking revenge for his capture and eventual execution. The show also drew inspiration from the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. The character of Sally McKenna, played by Sarah Paulson, is based on Lamb and her tragic death at the Cecil. Sally is portrayed as a ghostly figure who haunts the hotel, unable to move on from her tragic past. In addition to these real-life inspirations, the show also incorporated elements of classic horror stories and urban legends, such as the myth of the Hotel California and the legend of the Black Dahlia. The result was a terrifying and haunting story that captivated audiences and cemented the Cecil Hotel's place in popular culture as a place of darkness and despair. While the show took many liberties with the real story of the Cecil, it brought renewed interest to the hotel in its dark past. The show's portrayal of the hotel as a place of evil and supernatural happenings only added to the mystery and intrigue surrounding it, and many fans of the show have since become fascinated with the hotel's real-life history and the many strange and unexplained events that have taken place there over the years. So what is happening at the Cecil Hotel now? In 2007, the Cecil Hotel was sold to New York-based Richard Bourne and Ira Drunkier. The duo purchased the hotel for $26 million and announced plans to renovate and rebrand the hotel. The sale came at a time when the area around the hotel was undergoing gentrification and revitalization, with many new businesses and restaurants opening up in the neighborhood. The new neighbors initially rebranded the hotel as a boutique hotel, but the rebranding effort did not go as planned. Many long-term residents of the hotel who were low-income and lived at the hotel as a last resort were evicted to make way for the renovations. The hotel remained open during the renovation process, which left many guests unhappy with the state of it. Despite the renovation efforts, the Cecil Hotel continued to struggle financially under the new ownership. In 2011, the hotel was sold yet again to a company named SRO Housing Corporation, which was a non-profit organization that aimed to provide affordable housing to low-income individuals. After the notoriety surrounding the death of Elisa Lam and the reputation of the Cecil Hotel, the building's owners decided to rebrand and renovate it again. In 2014, a portion of the hotel was renamed Stay on Main with the intention of attracting a younger, hipper crowd of budget-conscious travelers, dubbed the Youth Hostel for the Modern Traveler. Of the hotel's 15 floors, 14 technically, as there is no floor 13, three towards the middle were set aside for the new Stay on Main, leaving the rest of the upper floors for the more long-term residents of the Cecil in accordance to its requirements for low-income housing. A separate entrance was created for the Stay on Main portion to continue efforts to separate its image and identity from the history of the Cecil. The renovation included updates to the lobby and guest rooms with a focus on a more modern and stylish aesthetic. However, the building's infrastructure remained largely unchanged, including the infamous Skid Row location and its reputation for violence and criminal activity. 
It should be mentioned as well that both the stay on main and Hotel Cecil guests shared the same elevators. This meant that it would be very possible as a young traveler to come face to face with deranged, mentally unstable, or drug-inflicted individuals while getting to your rooms. Despite the new name and look, many still associated the building with its troubled past and the mysterious death of Elisa Lam. The rebranding ultimately failed to improve the hotel's reputation, and it continued to struggle financially. In 2017, the building was sold to developers who planned to convert it into a mix of hotel rooms and affordable housing units. However, the project was met with resistance from both residents and city officials, and the building remained vacant. Until now. After almost five whole years of the Hotel Cecil being closed, it finally reopened this last week. They had a ribbon-cutting ceremony on Tuesday, and you know I was all over that shit. <laughs> the ribbon-cutting ceremony was Tuesday, December 14th at 9.45 a.m., and it was beautiful inside. I mean, it just looks so clean and nice and a little bit spooky, but it was beautiful. So that was a ribbon-cutting ceremony, which means now the Hotel Cecil apartments are open for unhoused Los Angeles residents who make less than 30% of the area's income, which means you have to make under $24,850 a year to be potentially accepted into the program to live there. And rent ranges from $900 to $1,200 a month. And what's interesting is that these are single room occupancy units, which means it's like 150 to 250 square feet rooms. They have to maybe share bathrooms or share a kitchen, kind of like dorm living to some extent. And this type of housing is actually like kind of unheard of now because in the 20th century, this was more common, but now it's practically impossible to build under those same codes. So to me, it kind of pays homage to the way the Hotel Cecil used to be. So it's almost kind of backtracking into the vibe that it was before. I don't know, that's my superstitious mind though, but I just think that that's kind of cool and it's kind of a cool way to honor the way the building used to be. So that's one of the reasons why this project of restoring the Cecil was so unusual. But another reason is because the developer was a for-profit developer and not one of the nonprofits that specialize in permanent supportive housing. And also the building's conversion was entirely financed by private capital. So they didn't rely on taxpayers. And because this was a historical landmark, which means that, you know, there's history here and it's almost been standing for a hundred years, they could do something called adaptive reuse. And what that means is that they were able to restore the aesthetic of this building, but keep the historical features. And because of that, it cost $75 million for this whole process to restore it, instead of like $300 million, which is what it would have cost if they had remodeled it as a luxury hotel, like they had initially planned. When the Hotel Cecil closed in 2017, there were articles that came out about how the owner was shutting down because he wanted to make plans about putting a rooftop pool and bar. He wanted to make it a luxury hotel and apartments and just kind of revamp it and make it like super cool. They had plans towards doing that and they were going to start, but then COVID happened. And instead, what I guess they decided to do is transform it into the Skid Row Housing Trust instead. So this is kind of a place where a lot of the homeless people or people who make very little money can go in and get their shit together so they can have a better life. Like, I, I think it's awesome what they're doing and I, I love it, but it's also like, okay, what were your intentions though? I started thinking they're just doing this because they're trying to find a loophole like they were trying to do when Stay on Main opened. Because of the restrictions around the hotel, we developed a concept for two separate hotels in one building. The Stay on Main Hotel would be a youth hostel for the modern traveler. 
and the Cecil would be for our tenants. They were trying to solve the problem in a creative way, trying to make a profit off a hotel which has negative connotation and a lot of bad press. And in a way, that's what they're doing now by deciding to restore the Cecil through adaptive reuse to save money, essentially getting them a 75% off discount in exchange for keeping its reputation the same. And then going on to making a deal with the Skid Row Housing Trust. I'm just saying maybe they back themselves into a corner and then they start cold. <laughs> So after I found all that out, I started thinking, well, then why would they do PR earlier this year with the Netflix documentary, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel? Why would they agree to Ghost Adventures after the same owner said no for years prior to that? Then all of a sudden, this year, they just decide, okay, yeah, let's do all this PR, but then we're not really gonna open to the public. Why is that? Because it was a for-profit developer using private capital, it would make sense to me that they probably already had the deal ready with the Skid Row Housing Trust, and they checked all their boxes before, they made sure that they were gonna make a good amount of money from it, that it was gonna work out. They probably were waiting until they made an executive decision on what they're going to do with the hotel. And as soon as they decided that it had nothing to do with really the general public, they probably were like, okay, yeah, let's just make some extra money. Because what is there to lose now? It probably helped them finance the rest of restoring the building. So they probably didn't care about, oh, there are spirits here, there are ghosts. Oh, we're gonna solve the case. We're not gonna solve the case. They probably were just like, great, okay, we don't care because it's never gonna really be open to the public. So smart, but that's just what I think. I could be completely wrong, but I feel like that would make sense as a business. And if it was open to the general public, then I would assume they would have to really figure out how to separate the Skid Row Housing Trust program and regular renters. So it would be the stay on Main and Hotel Cecil situation all over again, which obviously didn't end well. And now with all the press around it, they probably are concerned about people who want to go in and take their own life or people who want to go in and do seances or break onto the roof and people like me who are TikTokers, YouTubers who want content. It just feels like there'd be a lot of trouble there. So it makes sense why they would just keep it as a low-income housing program, at least for now. And I think that's what it will only be for a long time in this next chapter. Now they just have a specific demographic that they can focus on and manage, and they don't have to worry about anything else. But they'll have people visiting the outside. That's why they hired a guard, to keep people out. And that's why they put paper over the window in the front entrance. We got people like climbing through the, to the front of the building, you know, trying to get to the, the front gate of the building where the glass is. Like, everything was crazy. So you had to just walk the hallway. That's what my job duty was. My first night there, I was scared as I would hear like people breaking in. I would hear people crawling through the fire escapes, rats climbing through the walls, like weird noises, stuff like that. I'll see a door open and I see it closed next, like next second later, I'm like, what the heck? Like this place was really weird now. I really had some bad vibes from this place. Despite the ongoing speculation, the case of Elisa Lamb remains unsolved, and her death remains one of the most baffling and eerie mysteries in modern history. But perhaps the most chilling aspect of the case is the idea that the Cecil Hotel may still be hiding its darkest secrets, waiting to be uncovered by those who dare to investigate. As we come to the end of our episode, we're left with many unanswered questions. What really happened to Elisa Lam? Was her death the result of foul play or just a tragic accident? And what dark forces might still be lurking within the walls of the Cecil Hotel, waiting to claim their next unwilling victim? 
These are questions that may never be fully answered, but they serve as a reminder that the paranormal and the unknown are all around us, waiting to be found. And perhaps, if we listen closely enough, we may hear the whispers of the past, warning us of the dangers that lie ahead. Regardless of what really happened to Elisa Lam, her story has become part of the larger lore and legacy of the hotel. It's a place where the line between reality and the paranormal seems to blur, where tragedy and mystery seem to be woven into the very fabric of the building itself. But what is it about this hotel that seems to attract such darkness, and why do we find ourselves drawn to stories like these? Perhaps it's because they remind us that there is still so much we don't know about the world around us, that there are still so many undiscovered mysteries, and that the paranormal and unexplained are still very much a part of our collective consciousness. And maybe, just maybe, it's a reminder that we should never stop asking questions and seeking answers, no matter how unsettling they may be. Hey everybody, this is Jeremy Haig, your host of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, and this has been an episode of season three of our show. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your continued support and your patience with me, as it's been a few months since I've released episodes, but I definitely am planning on returning to the game, uh, and I'm so excited for everything I have in store for y'all. As always, if you want to learn more about me, visit my website at www.whenwallscantalktarot.com, and there you can join our newsletter list. Uh, to be reminded and updated every time we post new episodes, new offerings for my tarot services or courses, and the release of our highly anticipated upcoming monthly newsletter, The Spirit Box. If you have paranormal stories, poems, or, or any sort of reflections that you would like to submit and be a contributing writer for The Spirit Box, even on a case-by-case uh, -case basis, please reach out and let me know. I'm looking for people to join uh, and create a real community space with the Spirit Box, and I'm very excited for everything I have planned for that. Please also visit my Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces to see photos and other information involved in this case. As a reminder, if you enjoy the soundtrack of this and every episode on When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, please visit the link in my show notes uh, to join Artlist, which is the very best royalty-free music program in the game. Super high quality, cinematic, dramatic, really builds the energy of the show, and I feel is a critical part of the production quality of these episodes. So if you want your episode to sound anything like mine, definitely check it out. With that being said, I wish you all the best to all my paranormal weirdos and investigators out there, and I will catch you on our next episode. <laughs>